0: We look again this morning at a passage we examined last week, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verses 9 through 21. Where is God in all this mess? You need to know that I was ready to move on from Elijah's encounter with God at Mount Horeb. I had one other scene from the life of Elijah that I wanted to observe before we left this powerful prophet. But there was a sentence from God's brief response to Elijah at Mount Horeb that lodged in my thoughts. And I couldn't resist returning to that sentence this morning. Elijah had thought that he would certainly see a culture-changing revival after three years of a supernatural doubt in the fiery confrontation at Mount Carmel. However, Ahab and Jezebel in the elite of their court remained unchanged. The powerful prophet had seen his fellow prophets slain for years and now he once again was running for his life he complains to god i have been very jealous for the lord the god of hosts for the people of israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars killed your prophets with the sword and i even i only am left and they seek my life to take it away he doesn't say anything about the great victories that have been won Ahab and Jezebel, he says, continue to rule the day. God, where are you? That's what he was really saying. God, where are you in this mess? Now, as we saw last week, Elijah's summary, this summary of woe, left out the many great things that God had done through him. Elijah was doing what we often do. When we pray, he was informing God about all the terrible things happening in the world around him. God, do you know your prophets are being killed? Do you know your people have torn down your altar? Do you not know the culture is filled with immoral, perverse, idol worship? Do you not know I'm running for my life, God? I want us to see first in this passage something that Elijah does not seem to acknowledge. In times of crisis, remember that God is omniscient. We're not talking about omnipotence here. Omniscience. God sees. God knows. It's impossible for any of us to inform God. This summer, I, I watched as you have. I watched what you have. As, as riots occurred in New York, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, other places, I was actually appalled. I, I haven't ever seen anything like this in the history of my life in this country. In downtown major cities, premeditated destruction of buildings, Chaotic looting, burning, beatings, shootings, killings. The first evening that I saw this on my television screen, I called to Terry, who was in the other room. I said, Terry, come look at this right now. Come look at it. We stood there gaping at these scenes that were like they were out of a war zone, scenes of terror and chaos. It was like I was watching fighting in a war zone in a third world country. It was hard for me to believe that police, that mayors, that governors saw this chaos and acted like it was normal. It didn't go on just for days. It didn't go on just for weeks. It went on for months. I was tuning in nightly news every evening to see if anything was being done to stop the devastation. Everyone knew about it. Everyone saw it. Yet nothing was being done. I think that was the same frustration Elijah felt as he informed God. Of what was taking place in the godless culture of the northern kingdom. I think he was feeling the same frustration. I was feeling the same frustration he was. Elijah seemed to have forgotten that God was the one, remember, that sent the supernatural drought because of Israel's idolatry. God was the one who sent the fire from heaven to vindicate his name and presence. He seemed to have forgotten that. God knew the name of every prophet who had been killed. He knew the secret plans that were whispered by Ahab and Jezebel in the palace. Listen to God's word. Look at it there on your scripture sheet. Look at Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. You see, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Look at Isaiah 29, 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows? (laughs) Hebrews 4, 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When we are thinking in our frustration, Where's God in all this mess? Our first thought, our very first thought should be He does not need to be informed. He's omniscient. He sees. He knows. Now, someone might say to us Doesn't that omniscience bother you? That He always sees what you're doing, He always knows what you're thinking. You think you're really better than the Ahabs and Jezebels of this world? Do not your scriptures teach you that you also are a sinner? I'm glad that the world says that to us. When we look at the sinful mess around us, we are inclined to miss the mess that's in our own souls, aren't we? That's what makes confession of sin so much easier. I'm not informing when I confess my sin. I'm not informing God of my sin. He already knows my sin. As I confess my sin, I'm not informing God of something of which he's not aware. In fact, when I say to him, Father, my heart is so dark. My heart is so wretched. You know what God says? You know what the Father says? Oh, John. Oh, child. You have no idea about how dark and wretched your heart really is. But there's comfort in his seeing and knowing. It doesn't make us nervous. In 1 John 1, 1.9, we read this. If we confess our sin. And see, that's the real difference. It's not that the world sins and we don't. The world sins and so do we. The difference is the world justifies their sin. The world says this is not a sin. The world says God's too narrow. And they laugh at his word as being archaic. But we confess the truth of God. And we confess our sins. And why is that easy? He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and look and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When God washes us clean in the blood of Christ, he will not leave out a sin. He knows them all. He knows all our sin and he'll not miss one in his cleansing. We should say, thank you, Father. Thank you that you are omniscient. In a crisis, God is omniscient. He knows about the mess better than we do. So you say, John, what what verse captivated you so that you had to come back to it this week? Well, let me ask you that question as I read verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. What strikes you about that? Obviously, God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, I'm sovereign over Syria. I'm sovereign over Israel. What stands out as being unusual? Where is the first place God tells Elijah to go? What is the first sentence? Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. What does a prophet of Israel have to do with the anointing of a man to be king over Syria? Syria was a foreign nation. Syria was a nation hated by Israel. God was delivering a message to this dejected Elijah. Elijah, I'm sovereign over the nations. You have seen, Elijah, that I'm sovereign over nature, over the weather, over fire, wind, earthquakes. Elijah, I'm also sovereign over all the palaces, over all the kings, over all the nations. In Daniel 2.20, we read these words. And Daniel answered, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He's the Lord of nature. And then he writes, He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those you have understanding. Now let's consider the context in which Daniel wrote that. Daniel was a young man. A man much younger than most of us here this morning. If you're a teenager, you need to listen to this. Daniel, as a teenager, had seen and experienced chaos in his personal world. He had been born into a prominent family in Israel. He had been educated in the best schools of Jerusalem. He was devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from infancy. But his world had been turned upside down. Babylon had laid siege to Jerusalem. This young man, as a teenager, had actually looked over the walls of Jerusalem, and as far as his eyes could see, he saw this powerful army of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The armies of Babylon had literally crushed his hometown, his city. Every building was burned, every building torn down. One stone was not left, enough, was not left on top of another. Jerusalem, when he looked back, as he was carried away and changed to Babylon, as he looked back, Jerusalem was a wasteland. What did he need to know as he went through the gates of Babylon and saw scenes he had never witnessed his entire life? He needed to know that this God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, ruled over the nations of the world. He needed to know that the God of Israel also not only determined who sat on the throne in Israel, but he determined who sat on the throne in Babylon. That's what God showed Daniel in a vision. He needed that message. Read the second chapter. Read the rest of the second chapter of Daniel this afternoon. You'll see it. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, he actually told the king of Babylon, that his God, that the God of Daniel was sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar. That was a brave thing to do. Look at it. He was speaking to the most powerful human being in the world at that moment. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory into who, in, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, God gave you this throne. This is echoed all through scripture. You know this. When Pilate told Jesus as a governor, Jesus, don't you understand? I have the power of life and death over you. How did Jesus answer? Look at it in John. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say here in the midst of this mess? What did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. People, this is an important doctrine to know. If God is telling Daniel this in the midst of the mess, he's telling Jesus is saying this in the midst of the mess. We need to hear this as Christians. We tend to think that God has to do with matters of the church. It's out there all over. That's the way people of Fayette County, the worldly people of Fayette County, the men of Fayette County, the women, that's the way they think. Well, God, that's a matter for the church. He dwells in the church. He has to do with church things. He has to do with religious things. That's his realm. Washington is not his realm. Nashville is not his realm. Let me ask you a question. When you were standing there in front of your television, watching those scenes, what were you thinking? When you saw these cities burning, when you saw the chaos, how how great, how sovereign is your God? Were you standing there thinking, God sees, God knows. He's there. He He doesn't miss any of this. Were you thinking, he's sovereign. Even with this chaos, he's sovereign. In Chicago, He's sovereign. York you thinking that? I don't think. I didn't think that. But when I read God's word, I realize that's what I should be thinking. If he is not sovereign over Washington, Moscow, Beijing, London, Paris, and the United Nations, then he's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible says he is sovereign in those places. And so th- you can say to me, John, that means that Ahab was king of Israel only because God placed him there. That's right. Why would he do that? All through scripture, we read God gives individuals, families, cities, states, nations. All through scripture, we read that God gives them over to their own sins. He gives my family. He gives your family. He gives us over to our own sins. Read the history of that northern kingdom of which Ahab was king. They chose idolatry. They chose Baal over the God of Israel. And God turned them over to their choices. You want a Baal king? I'll give you a Baal king. His name is Ahab. His wife will be Jezebel. They wanted Ahab, and God gave them Ahab. Listen to Romans 1, 24 through 28. I do not like these verses. I did not want to write these verses. When I was putting these verses in this week, I wanted to take them out. I wanted to try to find a way to not read them. But if we're going to understand the sovereignty of God and what's going on in our culture, we must heed his warnings and see that he does turn us over to our own sins look at Romans 124 therefore God gave them up to gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator in other words, they worshiping the idols in their lives. The love that was due to God they gave to other things. for this reason God gave them up to dishonor Look around us in the mess today. Our sexual perversity did not pop up up out of nowhere. It didn't just go boom. It's there. It's what we wanted. It's what our culture wanted. And God has given us over to our own sins. You want that life? I'll give you. You want that culture? I'll give you that culture. California is passing a law right now. Passing a law justifying and legalizing pedophilia. Now think about that. That's our culture. These riots in the streets of our major cities did not just pop up out of nowhere. The revolutionary and economic doctrines of Karl Marx have been taught in our universities for decades. Let me say it again. The revolutionary and economic doctrines of Karl Marx have been taught in our universities for decades. We're discovering that ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. God has just earned us over to our own choices. That's what's happening. It's not hard to understand. In times of crisis, remember, God is omniscient. He sees, He knows. God is sovereign over the nations of the world. And sometimes He gives people the Ahab that they want. Thirdly, this is the final thing in this passage. We see that God will bring judgment on the sins of a nation. Look at verses 17 and 18. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Judgment. Elijah, I see. I'm sovereign. And this is what you're going to do. I'm bring a reckoning. God used Hazel. you go going to know Hazel, king of Syria. God would use Hazel. You read forward in scripture, Second Kings. God used Hazel to kill Joram. Who was Joram? Joram was the son of Ahab. He became king after Ahab was killed. And Joram became king and Hazel killed Joram, Ahab's son. Jehu, he became king in the northern kingdom. God used him to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. Jehu killed Jezebel. Jehu killed the rest of the house of Ahab. We read in Scripture in 2 Kings that he expelled the worship of Baal from the entire nation. Baal no longer, the worship of Baal no longer went on in Israel after Jehu. Now Jehu did not, re- did not return to the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he got rid of Baal. God knows every detail of our culture's depravity. God is sovereign over the nations. We may be the most powerful nation that's ever existed in the world, but he is still sovereign. And God will judge and we will not be exempt. This we know from this passage. He is turning us right now over to our own sins and He has shown us in these recent years what he can do with 12 men with wire cutters and what he can do with a tiny virus. So you say, what are God's people to do? What are we to do? It's where we closed the message two weeks ago. We do what Elijah did. Do what Elijah and Elisha told the people to do. Be faithful where you are. Be faithful to him in your families, in our families. Be faithful to him in our marriages, with our children, with our parents. Be faithful to him in our neighborhoods. Be faithful to him in our churches, making sure that the word is preached. We are blessed in being able to participate in the political processes of our country more than most of the people have been throughout history. We can pray. We can vote. Our vote means something. We can speak our convictions, at least for now, openly. The best and most powerful influence is being salt and light in our families, in the place where we live, in our work, in our leisure, in our church, in our schools. Listen to me. If we do not faithfully hand down the baton of God's word to the next generation in Somerville, in Oakland, in Arlington, in Eads, Williston, LaGrange, Rossville, Piperton, Whiteville, Fayette County, if we don't pass that baton faithfully, then we right here, In Fayette County, will reap the consequences. In J.R.R. Tolkien's great trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, he writes of a cosmic conflict between good and evil. He captures the biblical concept of the reality, of the battle of 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 the reality between good and evil in our world. In the end, for that time, in that place, good trumps over evil. That's in the trilogy. Gandalf, a powerful and good wizard, spoke to those who had fought so hard. Now, I read this to you last year in 2019. I read it to you in 2018. I'm sure I read it to you in 2017, and I'll read it to you again in 2021 because I often read this to remind me, and I want us to be reminded. This is what Gandalf said. Other evils there are that may come, for the evil we destroyed is but an emissary. Yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the relief of those years Wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after us may have a clean earth to till. What whether they shall have is not ours to rule. What was Gandalf saying? The weeds in our garden are our responsibility. We can't worry about the weeds that will grow in the gardens of the next generation. But we can pull the weeds in our own garden. If we can't pull them in Washington, if we can't pull them in Nashville, we can pull them in our own garden. And that's what we can give our children. We know the end. The end is a good ending. I read it this week. I'm writing... Studies our studies for Revelation on Wednesday and Thursday evenings. In Revelation eleven fifteen, look at it on your scripture sheet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." That's the ending, and He knows in His omniscience. He knows who the 7,000 are. He knows us by name. And he will be faithful in his keeping. Our hymn.